Hi, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Talking about the state of the reed case. It's like state of the union. State of the state. State of the reeds. State of the reeds. State of the pod. State of the brain. State of the mental health. Yeah. Probably safer to just stick to reeds. Yeah, right? So how are your reeds these days? Oh my god. No! I don't <laughs> I don't want to be negative. I don't want to put like bad vibes out into this double read sphere of community. But <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to keep it real. I was not one of those people who was making 2000 blanks over quarantine. It Mm-hmm. It's not something that happened. I gouged a lot of cane. I will acknowledge I did gouge a lot of cane. <laughs> um, and then around the time that they would have turned into a nice uh, stockpile of blanks in any other summer, I was planning a move and mm-hmm. moving and getting established in a new position, which has been um, quite the endeavor in shifting to online instruction. I know I'm preaching to the choir, everyone is going through this, but I was not one of those people who was like super inspired to make stockpile upon stockpile of reads. And I know it's naughty. I know that (laughs) it's like to say, oh, well, I'm not gonna be performing in public anytime soon. No one can hear that this, you know, once good read is now old, 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 old. Like no one can hear that. So I can just keep playing on it, right? And I've been doing that. And it's, oh man. So the state of my case, it's okay. 
it's okay, but it's time to get my <laughs> rearing gear because I actually have some stuff coming up now. Um, WSU has the ability to do live streams and uh, I am actually going to get some performance opportunities, maybe not collaborative opportunities, but some performance opportunities. And so it is time. And so I just wanted to shout out um, Fun Thread, right? Like if you're in yes. a Can we please swamp, shout out Fun Thread? It's just like fun thread can get the mojo going. Like, I don't feel like yes. making reads, but this worry wart thread is just so <laughs> green. I feel like I need to see what it looks like on a blank. You're like, which kind of green is it going to be? And it's variegated. So it's like sometimes the orange yep. is on top. Sometimes the orange is on the bottom. I know. It doesn't seem like it should be so motivating, but it is so motivating and exciting. Well, and it's funny because you all get like, I don't know, half an inch of thread. Like we at yeah. least get to really party in thread town when we make reads. <laughs> <laughs> you are cracking me up today. <laughs> but so I, uh, I have tons of companies I love. I love RDG. I love um, LC. And of course, I love Squirrely Stash. And so I was like, I need some fun thread to get my rear in gear and start making reads and act like a darn professional and get going. And so I ordered a handful of spools and I open up the package and there are more spools than I ordered. And I had made, if you follow me on Instagram, you know, I had made this kind of like pathetic story about feeling like the only bassoonist in the world who hadn't made reads in a long time and needing to get inspired and whatnot. And I was like, oh, Rachel saw that and was like, okay, I'll give her a couple of spools or something, um, which is the case, but not simply the case. So the note says, Jackie, thank you for your order. Welcome to the Northwest. I hope you enjoy the WSU inspired thread. And she gave me two spools of crimson and gray WSU oh colored God. thread so I can make cougar reads. That has to be a hashtag, cougar reads. Hashtag cougar reads. It was <laughs> so thoughtful. It was just the that little so sweet. kind gesture that I needed in my, you know, back to school stress. And I cannot wait to make, and I will be posting about my cougar reads. So thank you so much, Rachel at Squirrely Stash. You are the best. And you just made me feel so excited to finally make a read again. <laughs> First time since March. I don't think it's quite that bad, but I can't say for sure. That is amazing. <laughs> Please tell me that you're doing better than me when it comes to reads. Please. I think so. Yeah, okay. I think I'm doing better than you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually doing okay. I've started making blanks again. Good for uh, you. <laughs> I also have my new squirrely stash thread. It's called En Mi Viejo San Juan. And this one is called Dia de los Muertos. This is just like a squirrely stash dish. You know what I, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it. Um, so I have been making reads. Uh, I've been going back to my process. I have been teaching read class and I got a doc cam. If you listen to the last episode, you will hear me 
lament that I can't find a doc cam, but I found a doc cam for under $100. So I have been using that in read class and lessons and stuff, and it is a total game changer. And it makes me so excited to work on reads and read class because I can be like, this is what the crow is supposed to sound like, and this is what it looks like. And it is so much fun. And it's like really pretty. It's aesthetically very nice. So it makes me feel very professional. But uh, yeah, I'm getting back into the swing. I, it took me a few weeks to get my mind around this new reality of teaching online. But I feel like I'm in a groove. I feel like I understand what's happening. And I am now breaking in some day three reads so that I don't have to play on old, 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 old. <laughs> got the yeah. old, old read. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, the best part of teaching reads online is that if you're like, okay, let me hear that crow and test that read and your students read sounds horrible. You've just yeah. pushed mute and <laughs> you got to hear it. You know what I did today in read class? I... <laughs> I muted myself for the first crow so I could make sure it was good before I let them hear it. I was like, wait, let me check if this is embarrassing. Mute. Unmute. Pay no it's attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that has been very cool. And actually, um, I noticed that students have been muting themselves when they're um, trying their read. Which is nice because in actual in-person read class, the sound can be a little bit overwhelming. Like just the amount of sound. Face-to-face oh, yeah. read class, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we try we try to enforce the rule of only one person at a time, but sometimes, you know, people get excited and you get, it's just a lot going on. Well, and even more only one at a time, but constant. I remember the worst in grad school would be having a headache on read yeah. class day because the Iowa read class was three hours long. And if you had a headache on read class day, it was just like there would be a Jackie-shaped hole in the side of the building because I had <laughs> fled, flung myself out. Yeah, but I think things are on the up. And I would assume that they're on the up for you, too. They're going good for me. I'm going to send over some of this re-juju so that you get those beautiful blanks in that WSU thread, and you're gonna squirrely stash your way to the top. As Tim Gunn would say, make it work. (laughs) Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, 
Doubleary Dish is delighted to welcome to the podcast Peter Cooper, Principal Oboist of the Colorado Symphony and Teaching Professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Bye. Jackie. Could we start off by having you talk to our listeners about how you came to play the oboe? Well, I was, the summer I turned 13, I was still 12, I went to Interlaken to study acting. I was a drama major, and I got the bug to play an instrument after my summer at Interlaken, and I kind of wanted to play the clarinet. And um, my eighth grade band director the next fall was recruiting people to learn instruments, and she was out of clarinets, and she had an oboe that nobody was using, so I thought, why not? I'll try it. And at the time, I knew that oboists made their own reeds, and I knew you weren't supposed to bite them. And that's about all I knew. Um, I had no idea how all-encompassing it would become for the rest of my life. What happened um, once you started playing the oboe? Did you know from the beginning that this was the, the career path for you? And what led you to study music and maybe talk us through how you got started in your career? Well, about a year after I started playing, I started studying with Gladys Elliott, and she um, was my teacher throughout high school, but she remained my mentor for about 30 years after high school. And for those of you that don't know her, she was, um, for 30 years or so, the principal oboist of the Lyric Opera of Chicago in Grant Park, but she was also the principal oboist of the Dallas Symphony in Texas in 1951 when she was 22. So you can imagine at that time being a woman principal oboist and a young one at that, all of the difficulties she had to overcome. And through incredible imagination and hard work and a um, spiritual and, and amazingly grand personality and strength, she thrived and survived. And I was the beneficiary of a lot of her wisdom and advice. Um, so I think I really started taking off on the oboe when I began studying with Gladys. And, um, and I decided around age 15 that this is what I wanted to do for my life. I played a gig, some concert, um, I think it was the Vivaldi Gloria, the Domini Deus movement, in this church near Chicago where I grew up. And um, this church had the most amazing acoustics. So my thin, bright, nasal, scrawny sound sounded huge and rich and full in this church. And I was so thrilled at that. I decided, this is what I have to do. This is what I'm going to do. And um, I'm still with it. So where did you decide to pursue your formal education in higher ed? What was that path? And how did you go about preparing to embark on your professional journey? Well, at that time, growing up in Chicago, there was really only one, it seemed to me, only one place I could possibly go to school, which was Northwestern and study with Ray Still, because he was the god of the oboe in Chicago. And um, so I, I only applied to Northwestern. I applied early decision, so if I didn't get in, I could apply somewhere else. But I got into Northwestern, and that's where I went. And um, it was an easy, easy choice for me. Ray Still was a, an amazing musician and a brilliant, innovative, innovative thinker. He, um, his way of teaching the oboe and studying the oboe for himself was um, 
unlike anyone else. He made um, dozens of these little exercises, which he created, which were designed to um, address very specific issues. And his one of his brilliant ideas was that if you did the exercise correctly, then you would have to have a flexible embouchure, you would have to have be in the right place on the reed, and you would have to have blowing muscles that were flexible as well and not too tight. So rather than try to just scream at you to relax or something like that, he gave you something you could only do if every all the different pieces of the puzzle were working properly. And um, we spent probably most of the time in lessons doing these exercises. We would start playing a piece and then he'd stop and then we'd spend the rest of the time playing um, his exercises, try, try to get certain nuances, try to get um, certain skills that he considered essential to um, excellent music making and oboe playing. He was also a very tough teacher. And um, so he wasn't um, particularly kind in, at times. And um, he could be quite brutal. So I had to, on the one hand, try to absorb his genius and on the other hand kind of deflect the um, harshness that sometimes accompanied the genius. That sounds a lot like actually when you were talking about the exercises and starting a piece and then spending the whole lesson on these little exercises it sounds a lot like my lessons with Bert Lucarelli when I was an undergraduate and I would love to hear a little bit more about those specifically, um, what kinds of things he would work on you with. It sounds like maybe read exercises were in there. I'm just excited to hear more about that. Well, Bert Lucarelli studied with Ray still, so I imagine some of those exercises or some of the principles behind the exercises that you did with him were um, from Ray still as well. Um, but things like, um, well, even even playing an accented note to an unaccented note. We would spend um, dozens and dozens of hours playing accented notes to unaccented notes. And his contention was that if the, um, you have to find a way to play the accented note that doesn't interfere with the way you play the unaccented note. And generally, um, it comes from too much abdominal tension. So um, you would, you would, play these notes and he would say that the way you could tell if a, if a technique is efficient or not is if you could accelerate the technique. So you'd play an accented note to a non-accented note, maybe a G to an F sharp, and then you'd accelerate it and he'd see if you could keep the same nuance as you got fast. And what often would happen is you could play the nuance at a slower speed and then there was a certain breaking point where it would it would reverse, the, the inflection would reverse because you didn't have the facility in your abdom abdominal region and in your embouchure to do the inflection at a quick speed. So um, we would constantly work to try to increase the speed and delay that point where it would, um, the inflection would go away. Does that make any sense? That is absolutely fascinating. And it seems like he was able to take everything and break it down into its smallest part. And then, you know, the student would be able to use that and build their technique back up from the very bottom. Well, exactly. And, and like, for example, the embouchure, um, everybody's embouchure is necessarily slightly different because everybody's mouth is different, their lips, their 
teeth, their palate, their tongue, everything is different. And um, I can make my embouchure look just like Ray Stills, but I couldn't play at all. And, um, and I have asymmetrical lips. My lower lip is bigger than my upper lip. So, and he, he had symmetrical lips. So my embouchure was necessarily different looking than his. However, he would give these embouchure exercises that you could only do if your embouchure was working efficiently. And so rather than micromanage your embouchure and say, no, move your lip like this, no, bring in the corners, no, do this, do this, do this, which, which is not always so effective, he would insist that you do this exercise up to his standards. And if you could do the exercise, then your embouchure was necessarily working properly. I absolutely love that because I've, you know, as a teacher, I have found myself backed into that corner sometimes where you're like, well, it looks right, but it sounds wrong. <laughs> so that's so interesting to hear that, like coming out at it from the other direction. I love that. But on the other hand, he once got so exasperated by the way that my amateur looked different from his and he suggested slightly tongue-in-cheek that I have surgery and have half my lower lip removed. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was, he was partially joking. <laughs> Did he have a big influence on your sound concept? Because you're really renowned for your beautiful tone. And I'd love to get into your sound concept and how you um, hear your own sound in your head and how you teach sound concept. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, that's, a, that's a difficult question. I, I think he obviously had some, of course he had influence on my sound concept. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think the, the sound concept comes primarily from one's imagination. Um, I think you have to know what you want to sound like. And, and you get to that sound concept partly by listening to oboe players, but also by listening to great artists on other instruments and thinking, how can I have that kind of variety or that kind of um, palette so I can sound brilliant, I can sound covered, I can sound caressing, I can sound exciting. Um, how can you do all of that? And then, of course, that's completely intrinsically connected to the reeds. But I think um, I think Gladys Elliott also had a humongous effect on my sound concept, because one of the best parts of my education was getting to play second oboe to her. I played a couple times in the Lyric Opera, and I played quite a few um, freelance ballets with her in Chicago, where I'd play second to her, and I'd hear her play. And I had no idea that the oboe was capable of the variety of sounds and dynamics that she was able to produce. And so it's always been my goal ever since I was a student playing with her to try to have that kind of variety in my own sound. And then another concept was when I, my first job in the Hong Kong Philharmonic, I encountered a lot of European oboe players and I could hear them do all these things that I couldn't do and most American players weren't doing. And I thought, how can I try to have the kind of soloistic flexibility that these European players have while still sounding like an American player playing on an American style reeds? I didn't want to go to a short scrape reed. Um, so how can I kind of combine the, the soloistic virtuosity of 
of these great European players and still sound like an American player. And that's also been a lifelong goal for me. I want to hear much more about that because I love that beautiful soloistic confidence that European players so often have and the brilliance and just the, the extrovertedness. Um, and I, I just want to hear more about how you're working to incorporate that into your, into your reads, into your um, aesthetic and how it works in an American setting. Well, again, it starts from your imagination. Um, um, and, and then I remember the first time I heard um, Francois Leleu play live. And I thought mm. to myself, wow, he can do so many things that I can't do. And, and I came away realizing that my blowing muscles need to be much more virtuosic than they were. And that doesn't mean stronger. It means the ability to use them a little bit, to use them a lot, to go from a little to a lot, from a lot to a little, and change on a dime, which is what he could do. And I, I um, so something like that kind of shocks you into realizing that there's there's some physical deficiencies that are inhibiting the flexibility and the variety of sound. And I think I think so much of it comes from the read. Um, you know, one thing I always say to my students when I'm teaching read making is you want your read to begin vibrating with a slow airspeed and you want your read to be able to accept a fast airspeed. Um, both. Because you can have a read that'll, that'll begin vibrating with a slow airspeed, but there's no sound. And you can have a read that accepts a fast airspeed, but can't play softly. And I want my reads to be able to do both. So I want I want the reads to begin vibrating with the lightest of breath attacks. And yet when I give the full speed and let loose with the air, the read has enough substance to take it. Um, and that's a lifelong quest too, to try to learn how to make reads like that. And um, But I think, again, one of my sayings, I always say the read making must be guided by the musical vision. So you have an idea of what you want to sound like and what you must sound like, and then you make sure your reads allow you to sound like that and, and not compromise if, if they don't. You just keep at it and keep at it and make sure the reads will allow you to do what you have to do musically. Is there a lot of experimentation in your read-making process? Well, there certainly has been over the years. I've sort of settled on some things, but the... the um, you know, one of Gladys Elliott's great lines about, well, read making and life is, and I have to quote her in her Southern accent because that's how she's taught. She'd say, Peter, don't put your mind in a straight jacket. And, and, and I, love I love that. that. Don't, put your, don't put your mind in a straight jacket. And, and so the read making, it's interesting because everything up unto the scraping part, all of the cane selection and the splitting and the testing and the radius gauges and the gouging and the micrometers and the and the um, shaping, all of that is very, very disciplined, organized and scientific, very, very meticulous. And um, doesn't you try to eliminate variables as much as possible so you can have a similar kind of product every time and i have so many tests i do on the cane before i'll actually make a read on it but then the scraping part i think of it as very different the scraping part is then connected with my musical ideals so on so read it's like the the craft 
of reed making is up into the scraping. And of course, scraping is a craft too, but the scraping is more of an art. So it's like arts and crafts. It's like summer camp. Um, but, but I try to think, I think of it very, very differently, the different aspects of, of reed making. And I try to, um, when I scrape it, I try to maximize the potential of each piece of cane. And I try to get the reed too vibrant and then bring it back. And I, oh, I'm a little different from a lot of people that way. Rather than, I think most people get a reed exactly vibrant enough and stop. But I like to get a reed too vibrant and then bring it back from too vibrant to no longer too vibrant. And almost. I imagine vibrant. that helps with the breath attacks. Sure. And it does. And, and obviously, if it's, if it's too vibrant, it can be unstable and wild and, and ugly or something like that. So you, you try to, but yeah, you, yeah, it, if, if I, I feel like the greatest reads are just on the verge of catastrophe. I mean, they're just they're <laughs> almost, in other words, they're almost unstable, but they're not. They're mm -hmm. almost wild, but they're not. They're almost too much, but they're not. They're just on the verge. And, and I feel the only way I could get to that point with just on the sunny side of catastrophe is, is um, by going over the edge and then bringing them back. It sounds like the line between great artistry and insanity. <laughs> You're just on the right side of that. <laughs> well, but you have to teeter over the edge now and then. To, unless you go... Because unless you go over the edge, you don't know where the edge is. Right. And so that's why I like to go over the edge so I know, okay, that's too far. That's wild and flat and horrible. So I just, you know, a little tiny clip. I try to think, okay, so this reed might be wild and flat and horrible, and yet there's something appealing about its power and its potential. So how little can I do to it in order to make it socially acceptable? And, and, and I love that. So I, I, I try to come from that angle in the reed making to, and, and that, so that would give me the more of um, a potential of sound and color dynamics in the reed for me. I imagine when you were talking about imagination and, you know, imagining the, the potential of artistry and beautiful sound and function um, that as a teacher, you encourage that and also deal with the students' frustrations at not being there yet. And I was wondering how you encourage your students to aspire to that level of artistry, because um, I know that their attention is pulled in 500 different directions. And I'm wondering if you have any insight on, you know, encouraging and inspiring your students to listen, to imagine, to explore, um, and really find their own voice. Well, we talk about it all the time, that kind of thing. So that's one thing is that, is that you're constantly encouraging them to explore, encouraging them to try more. And, and I like to have students play the same phrase in maybe three completely different ways. Um, different emphasis, different, different dynamics, different climax to the phrase, um, and see if they can make it successful in three different ways. And then have them choose which way do they think is the best. Um, 
And if they start thinking like that early on, well, I could play it this way, I could play it this way, I could play it this way, then they start realizing that there are always our options. There's not one correct way of doing anything. You know, one of, one of, I have so many lines I say all the time, but one of them is, you know, there are infinite correct ways of playing that phrase. And there are infinite incorrect ways of playing that phrase. And you have to choose from amongst the infinite correct ones. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but the, um, but, you know, but the, the point is I, I'm, I'm very much constantly giving them the message that you have to choose the way that works for you and you have to sell it. You have to sell it so that someone will buy it, even though they didn't know they needed it. They'll buy it anyway. And, and, um, and so we talk about that all the time. So by talking about it, by encouraging, by demonstrating, by having them try different things, hopefully something inside the student will um, ignite. Or usually, hopefully, it's already ignited, but it will be more focused towards a, um, an artistic goal. Would you talk us through how you got to Colorado, how you got to Boulder, where you both teach at the University of Colorado and play as principal oboe in the Colorado Symphony? Well, I was, I was playing in the San Francisco Symphony. My first job was in the Hong Kong Philharmonic, where I played principal level for nine years right out of college. And then I got um, the job of associate principal in the San Francisco Symphony. And, um, and then I decided to audition for the principal job in Denver. And one thing that um, I didn't, I had spent a summer at Aspen once and I knew that high altitude reads were a nightmare, but I didn't know exactly what to do about it. So I decided for my Colorado Symphony audition that if I had a fantastically good read, I might be the only one that does. So I drove up to Lake Tahoe in, um, from San Francisco, which was about a five, four and a half hour, five hour drive. And I stayed up there for three days. It's a similar altitude to Denver. And I made about 15 reads and practiced at altitude. And then I got to Denver before the audition about five days early where I worked on the 15 reads I made at Lake Tahoe and then made another 15 reads. And um, so I had about 30 reads for this that I made for this audition in different gouges and different shapes and different cane sources and because I didn't know what was going to work. And the morning of the audition, I had one fantastically good read and about 30 lousy ones. And that fantastically good read won me the audition. Wow. <laughs> but it wasn't good luck or an accident. I mean, I, I spent, what, eight days just making reads for this audition. Um, to make sure. So sometimes we have auditions and we had a clarinet audition and some guy came right off a plane from Florida and he oh my God. came to, he, he ran right from the airport to the audition and then nothing was speaking. He couldn't get the sound and he was saying, please let me audition again tomorrow. I had no idea that this was so hard. And, and um, on the one hand, I'm completely sympathetic. And on the other hand, I'm not sympathetic at all <laughs> because... <laughs> Because I think you have to you have to do your due diligence and um, you know make sure if you're going to a different altitude that you're prepared. I don't think you can come up from sea level to this altitude and just bring your sea level reads and have them work and sound good. Um, next year we're hosting the IDRS conference in Boulder in 2021, and with all of the um, information about the conference. I'm going to include a page of suggestions for making reads at altitude for anybody that's coming. Bless you. 
You'll be everyone's favorite host. <laughs> Not necessarily because it's a pain in the neck. <laughs> but at least it'll help a little bit. One thing our listeners always love hearing about is auditioning. Uh, the process of auditioning and also the um, information gained from the experience of being on the other side of the screen. So could you talk to us about, uh, in addition to, um, you know, diligent read making and regard for altitude and environmental changes, more generally, how did you go about preparing to audition successfully? And what have you learned from listening to auditions as part of a committee? Okay, I will try to be succinct because I could go on and on about this topic. But um, one thing for anybody that's interested, I wrote a paper on my thoughts on how to take auditions. And it's on the um, University of Colorado Oboe Studio website. So if anybody wants to read that, they can go there and find it. Um, but there's a few basic points. Of, uh, try to give the, the, the biggest picture points about audition taking. One is um, only worry about the things within your control. That's a really big one because... Um, what is within your control? Well, the only thing that's within your control is your preparation, your reads, your attitude, um, your concentration, that, that sort of thing is the only thing that is really within your control. And that's really the only thing you should be thinking about at the audition. What are things that aren't within your control? Who is coming to the audition? How many people are going to be there? What number do you draw? Oh my God, this person keeps on beating me out in the band audition and then they're at the, this audition. I can't win. All of those thoughts are completely um, unproductive and you, you, you shouldn't go there. And I think with practice, you can get like that where you're think, you start thinking an unproductive thought and you tell yourself, okay, that's not helping. I'm going to think about the things I can control. And at first, when I say that, you think, yeah, that's easy to do, sure. But actually, you can, you can make progress with that. And so if your mind is going down some path, you can say, well, is that something within my control? No. So I'm not going to go there. What is within my control? I'm going to imagine what I'm going to do with the opening slow solo of La Scala di Seta Overture. I'm going to think more about that because that is totally within my control, that sort of thing. So that's one big picture. Another, another big picture is I think you have to um, give the committee a reason to hire you. And I believe this so strongly. I think a lot of people preach, you know, don't do anything too, too personal. Don't go on a limb. Don't take any chances in the preliminary round. Just lay it out there solidly. And I completely disagree. Now, I'm not saying those people are wrong. I'm just saying that I disagree. I think from the very beginning, you have to make give a reason why they should take you. Um, so one of my audition sayings that I say over and over again is don't give them any objective reason to reject you. Give them lots of subjective reasons to take you. So what are objective reasons to reject you? Well, you play wrong notes, wrong rhythms, it's sloppy, it's out of tune, your tempos are, are too slow or too fast. Those are um, objective reasons to reject you. But what, and what, so you just don't, you, you have to address all of those issues. You're in tune, you're in rhythm, you are clean, and your tempos are within the range of reasonableness. And then beyond, but that's only the base, that's only the foundation. 
That's not the secret. Um, and on top of that solid, solid base, then you make, you make a case for yourself. Why should they take you? And it's because of your incredible passion, your imagination, your color variety, your La Mer doesn't sound like your Eroica, your Tambo de Couperin does not sound like your Scala di Seta. You have a whole palette of colors and pictures that you're trying to present. And each one sounds different. Um, that's, that's another thing I think about a lot. Another thing regarding the technique is I, um, this is kind of a long topic. I'll try to be succinct on this one. I, I have this concept called the inner freakout meter. And the inner freakout meter is basically the amount of anxiety you have while you're playing. So take an excerpt like the opening of Tambo de Couperin, and you say, well, most people, most oboists can play it some of the time cleanly, and they get to the audition and they say, well, I know I can play this well, and I hope this time that I do. And that's not a good attitude, in my opinion, for the audition. I think you find when you're preparing for um, the audition, you find a speed where your inner freakout meter is barely registering. And it doesn't matter if the tombo de Couperin is at one quarter, the finished tempo, if you have to play be da da di da da di da at that speed. But that's the speed where you feel no anxiety. That's where you start. And as you, as you, Generally, um, as you increase the tempo, you're not only listening to the cleanliness of your fingers and your articulations, but you're also measuring your inner anxiety, your inner freakout meter. And if your freakout meter goes up to three or four on a scale of 10, then you're playing it too fast. Mm. And here's a good point. If it sounds perfect and you feel anxious, it's too fast. And, and if you have the discipline, and few people do, but if one has the discipline to work up to tempo on an excerpt like Tempo de Couperin, while never having that freakout meter more than one or one and a half on your 10 scale, then by the time you get to the audition, you won't think, well, I can play it, and I hope I do. You'll say, it's always perfect. I'm always calm. I'm always comfortable. I'm never anxious. I always nail it, and I will nail it now because that's all I know. And and it really, really works, but it takes a tremendous amount of patience. And most people will do it slowly a few times and they'll say, ah, it's fine. And then they'll just go faster. So you really have to have the, the patience to um, work it up slowly. And so I think, I think if you have all of your technical excerpts practiced in that way, that helps reduce anxiety enormously. Another one of my sayings is that... Um, Playing the fast excerpts poorly will lose you the audition, and playing the slow excerpts well will win you the audition. Um, nobody wins the audition on playing the tempo de Couperin cleanly, but a lot of people have lost auditions because of that. Mm -hmm. Playing it sloppily. I think um, you win the auditions by having clean technique and then touching their hearts with the slow excerpts. So you have to really focus on, on being the the emotion the tenderness the passion the variety the color the dynamics so that you wow them with the slow ones um the fast ones keep you in the game and the slow ones win you the audition mm -hmm. another point one of my basic points and then i will go on to another subject um is 
I have been the last few years insisting to my students they record themselves each excerpt a minimum of 12 times. And you can do it far more than 12 times, but that doesn't mean 12 in a row, bam, I'm done. It means you do it once and then you listen back and you say, okay, what do I hear? What's not working? What could be better? And the first few times it'll be obvious what needs to be better. And then by the sixth and seventh time, if you've addressed those obvious things, you'll find that it gets more and more subtle. And by the time you get to um, the twelfth, you're just getting the tiniest little note that's maybe a little out of place in the line, or a tiny little false accent that you hadn't intended, or a tiny, tiny um, note that's not quite energized in the way you want to. And you're hearing it at such a subtle level by the time you get to your 12th time. I had a student who won a number of auditions a couple years ago. She was on a roll and she said the biggest secret was recording herself 12 times. She said, before I recorded myself 12 times on every excerpt, I had never been prepared for anything and I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, I think, a very important component of winning an audition where you've addressed every single thing. And when you're listening back to yourself on a recording, if you think it might sound good, then it doesn't. If it's right, you will know it. You will know it. So usually my process is I listen, I say, okay, that doesn't quite work. And then the next question is, well, why not? What is keeping this from working? And then you you try to figure that out and address that and record it again and see if it works better that next time. So it's not um, it's not an accident if you're prepared for an audition. And one and one also answering a previous question that you gave is one of the things I teach the students is that a successful audition is based on not a single secret, but it's based on ten thousand tiny successes. In other words, say that your finished tempo of the tumble de Cooperin is 92, and today you're able to get it from 32 to 36 without increasing your inner freakout meter. That is a success. Yes, of course, you still have to go from 36 to 92. That's reality, but today was a success. And if you, if you say, oh, I accented that note and I didn't realize it, and now I realize it, that is a success. And if you take that attitude, every single practice session will be successful. So every single day you are successful. I think about in every one of my lessons, I want to have at least a success, hopefully more than one. Every practice session, you should have a success, hopefully more than one. And they may seem like tiny successes are trivial, but you add them up and suddenly thousands of successful practice sessions and you've accomplished something significant and audible. Thank you for sharing that really down to earth and, <laughs> and kind approach. I really like that a lot. I would love to ask you about um, your recording and your commissioning because you've done a lot to contribute to our repertoire, um, the Mullican Concerto and this new concerto by Kevin Putz. Well, the Kevin, the Kevin Putz um, concerto was co-commissioned by us, the Colorado Symphony and the Baltimore Symphony. Oh. And actually, in fairness, it was written more for Catherine Needleman than for me. <laughs> it wasn't written. For, I mean, she was the one that worked on it with him and she was um, 
I just we just happened to co-commission it, but she played the premiere and she worked with him as he was writing it. So I cannot take um, credit for that one. Um, I played the second performances of it, but the the um, Mulliken was my idea. The Bill Douglas concerto was my idea, and there were a few others that I um, that I've commissioned over the years. And you know, a lot of that comes from a discussion I had in my early 20s with Heinz Holliger. He came to Hong Kong to perform and I hung out with him as much as I possibly could. And he was pointing out this fact that I'd never thought about. He said that after World War II, with all of these composers that had sought refuge in the United States, he said, at that time, had Marcel Tabuteau been so inclined, he could have had commissioned concertos from Bartok, from Stravinsky, from Prokofiev, from Schoenberg, from Hindemith, from Korngold, from all of these people that um, were looking for work. And Tabito at that time in the late 40s had the prestige and the, the fame where he could have, had he been so inclined, he could have had you know, six or seven of the greatest 20th century composers writing oboe concertos. And Holliger viewed that as a huge tragedy that that didn't happen. And he said that will ne that situation will never be repeated. And that opportunity will be lost forever. And that made a real impression on me. And I thought, well, okay, I can't commission a Stravinsky and Bartok and Prokofiev oboe concerto, but I can do something. So that was um, inspired me to try to do my part to increase the oboe repertoire a bit. The Mulliken Concerto, I, uh, one of my students actually performed for the concerto competition here at USM, and it is just delightful. And I'd love to know if you have any other gems that you'd like to recommend that maybe people don't, uh, that maybe are not that widespread or people may not necessarily know about. The well, the, the Mulliken Concerto is, I think, a, a masterpiece oboe concerto. And, Definitely. And it might have been my idea, but I was not the genius behind it. David Mulliken was the genius behind it. And, um, and I think it's, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And every time I hear of a performance of it, either by a student or a professional, I get a kind of a thrill because that will, um, the whole idea for the Mulliken Concerto came to me when I was daydreaming during a youth concert <laughs> and the Colorado Symphony. I thought, Hey, I wonder if David Mulliken could write me a concerto. And the, I, the whole thing came to me during that youth concert. And the fact that it actually existed and it got recorded in London and, and, and um, I consider that like my greatest professional accomplishment that that piece exists and um, it's available for people to learn. Um, Bill Douglas, who I'm sure you know all about, mm -hmm. um, he, he lives in Boulder and um, He's written a lot of wind music, oboe sonatas, trios, quartets. Um, but he wrote a concerto for me. It's called Songs and Dances for Oboes and Oboe and Strings. And I believe um, Eric Olberg just recorded it. I think so. But um, it, and the, the, one of the cool things about that piece, well, Bill Douglas is a master at writing melody, and he writes kind of really cool hip stuff too like the third movement is called afro-cuban baroque and he um and and that music can be played either with oboe and string quartet or oboe and string orchestra so i know not all students have access to string orchestras but a lot of them could 
find um, a string quartet to play with. And I highly recommend that one too, the Bill Douglas piece. Um, and that music's available. Both the uh, Mulliken and the Bill Douglas are available at Trevco Music. With all of your experience as a principal oboist, I'd love to know what, in your opinion, uh, makes a great principal oboist? That's a good question. Um, and it's not an easy question to answer. Um, because I think when you're playing in an orchestra, you have these, these um, multifaceted roles. Because sometimes you are absolutely the soloist and the center of it all. And you have to carry um, a passage and, and, and be a musical leader. And at other times, you are completely subservient and you are playing under the flute or under the clarinet or, or, or um, part of a chorale a, a, where you're just one voice amongst many. And you have to know when do you come through and, and take charge and when do you back off and allow someone else to shine. Um, I think you have to know that. I think to be a um, great principal oboist, you have to um, you have to occasionally be a showstopper. Um, and my first music director in the Hong Kong Philharmonic, when I was just 22 years old, he said he sat down next to me and he told me how he had been Leonard Bernstein's assistant. This was Kenneth Skirmerhorn, the guy. Um, for whom Skirmahorn Hall in Nashville is named. And he sat down next to me at breakfast on a tour. And he said to me that he, um, he had been Leonard Bernstein's assistant in the 1950s in the New York Philharmonic. And when Harold Gomberg was at his prime, and he was telling me how Harold Gomberg had these show-stopping capabilities. He said he would play Shostakovich five, and the so the concert could end after the oboe solo, and everybody would go home happy. It was so, so wonderful. And he was encouraging me to try to develop the kind of show-stopping qualities. And I don't know if I've done that or not, but I've been working on that ever since then. So when it's when it's that moment, you can grab it, and and um, and I think um. You have to work on your on your nerves and your concentration and your focus and your and your preparation so that when the moment of truth comes, you don't freak out. You you are able to relish it. I think I think to be a, a, a great principal level player, you have to enjoy the pressure. You have to enjoy being on the hot seat. You have to enjoy the the nervousness and the nervousness never fully goes away. At least it hasn't for me, maybe for some people. And um I mean, I was, we played a year ago, Le Tambo de Cooper, and I was saying it's amazing how, how many tens of thousands of times I practiced this piece and I'm still nervous about it. I'm still not at all cocky or sure. Um, yes, I tried to do the inner freakout meter practice technique again, but I like the fact that, that I still get nervous, that I still am not, I'm not sure that I will nail it. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I have a healthy respect for the difficulty of these solos, and and I like that. I think you have to um, you have to embrace the nerves, and you have to celebrate the excitement of it, and you have to record yourself twelve times, over and over and over again on everything. So I know that you are a Marigo artist, and I would love to hear more about how you made that decision and um, what brought you to the Marigo brand. Well, what brought me to the Marigold brand was that um, I 
couldn't find an oboe that I liked, and I just decided... I had been playing um, Lorraine's for 22 years at that point, and, and I... Um, I was trying to buy a new one, and I couldn't find one that really liked the one. I the one that had just was dying was so good, and then I, I, I wasn't finding one that I liked to replace it. And I decided just to try some other oboes just on a whim, and I tried um, a number of brands, and I, much to my amazement, fell in love with the Marigold, and I've been playing them ever since. And um, one thing that's cool that people may not realize is there's a new Marigold model called the A the A model for American. And I was the consultant in developing this oboe. Basically, um, it's designed to suit an American oboe reed. There were certain notes on the traditional marigold that were flat for our reeds. And, um, and what I would do is buy an oboe in Paris and then have those flat notes raised so I could play on them. And what the A model is, is basically all of those notes are raised in advance. So the low G is not flat, the middle C is not flat, and also the high E flat, um, they have changed the half hole key so that the high E flat is now perfect and you can play it without any kind of hint of multiphonic and sometimes in the past they weren't always as perfect. So it's improved and it works for Americans and I love it, I am sold and um I would encourage people, if they're looking for an oboe, to try one. As you think back over the course of your career, we would love to hear about a special memory that stands out, a performance or an experience that you had that has stuck with you over time. Well, the recording sessions in London um, when I did the Mulliken and the Strauss Obo Concerto, um, I had to raise the money to do those recording sessions. It'd be nice if the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields called me up and say, we picked you out of all the oboists in the world to make a recording with us, but it doesn't work that way, at least not for me. Um, so I, I had to, I actually hired the orchestra and I had to raise the money for the recording of that. And we had two days to record. Um, we had, the first day we had six hours of recording sessions, but with breaks, it's like four and a half hours um, to rehearse and record the Mulliken Concerto. And the next day we had the same amount of time to rehearse and record the Strauss Concerto. And there was no opportunity for um, makeups or for adding overtime or coming back the next day. That was not an option because everybody was booked up. And um, I got to London 10 days in advance with another 30 reads to work on to make sure I had reads for the low altitude reads to work on for the um, for the recording. And the fact that that came off, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased that it came off. I mean, there are things I could tell you I don't like. I wish this was different. I wish that was different. But all in all, it came off. And I'm, I'm so happy about that. Um, and there are so many, there are so many moments in the orchestra. Um, I still love the fact that there are pieces that give me goosebumps and shivers up and down my spine. Still, at this point, after more than 35 years of doing it professionally, I still, I play the, the middle of the slow movement of the Schubert Great C Major Symphony, and I get goosebumps every time. 
I play the um, the Brahms one symphony. There are places in that I get goosebumps every time. Brahms two, there are places I get goosebumps every time. And I think, well, how lucky I am because every job has can be tedious and boring and frustrating and maddening. And yet most people don't have occasions on a regular basis on their jobs where they get shivers up and down their spine and the hair on their arms sticks up. And I do. And I am so, so grateful to have that. So that was a beautiful, beautiful memory that you shared and a really inspiring recording experience. And now on the flip side, I'd really love to know about anything horrifically embarrassing that you would like to share with us and the listeners. I, I actually, I have a number of them. Um, but like, um, I mean, there's a, a couple a couple equipment malfunction things. Um, okay. We were doing, um, when I first, we used to play in the Colorado Symphony, we used to accompany the Opera Colorado. And we were doing the complete Rosenkavalier, all four acts, four hours plus, and I had a read for each act, I was all ready. So we did the first act and we went, had our intermission, we're on to the second act and I had my new read. And that was when we, um, where the presentation of the rose scene, the beam, that, that solo. Mm -hmm. And I played the first, first rendition of it. It was fine. I had eight bars rest. I was going to just take my read out of my read well, just to kind of suck the moisture out of it. And un amazing, all of a sudden in my hand, I had two pieces of cane and some thread. <laughs> and the staple was still in the read well. I've never done that before or since. And you know, I had eight measures, and I said to the second <laughs> oboist, um, may I borrow your oboe, please? And see if you can get this out of the reed well. And so we swapped oboes, and I took out my first act reed, which was still wet, and I played the next solo on the first act reed and didn't miss a beat. But I was completely freaked out. And one, one other... Um, one other time, I, when I was in the San Francisco Symphony, I was associate principal oboist. I was not the principal, which means um, I wasn't, I didn't have concerto opportunities or anything on a regular basis, but we did do this Bach festival and I got to play the Bach oboe and violin concerto in this festival. And I was playing the first movement. All of a sudden I realized, I think one of my springs just broke because every time I played B flat, it came out B natural. And, and, I've never before or since had a spring break in a concert. Never, never. But my, and we only did it one night. So I had one shot at this concerto and my spring broke during the first movement. So while I'm playing the first movement, I'm thinking to myself the second movement thinking, do I have any B flats? I thought, yes, the whole thing is around B flat. <laughs> so, so I finished the first movement and I said to the conductor, um, Maestro, will you excuse me just a moment? And I walked off stage and ran to the dressing room, quick, 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 get my other elbow, put it together, put it together, right back, right back, right back, right back. Walked down stage. Thank you, Maestro. Let's continue. <laughs> and I, I tried to look cool and collected, and I think my shirt was as wet as if I had jumped in a swimming pool. <laughs> and and played the second movement. Um, and one more, just one more. When I was, Please. When I was 21 years old, um, I was playing a recital on Wisconsin Public Radio. It was a live recital in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, the air con it was in August and the air conditioning had gone out in the studio. And it was 
well over 90 degrees and humid in the studio. And I was really struggling. I was really struggling and I not sounding very good at all. And the British um, announcer was seeing me struggle and he was feeling sorry for me, but he said, uh, live on the radio, um, after the concert, perhaps we'll have a chance, we'll have a chance to speak with Mr. Cooper and perhaps he'll find speaking easier than oboe playing. <laughs> and I thought, what? You can't say that on live on the radio. <laughs> I was so horrified. And, and one of my colleagues, one of my colleagues came up to me afterwards who had listened to the recording and said, well, Peter, sounded great except for the Hummel. <laughs> That was that was an embarrassing moment from when I was. <laughs> I can't. That is so funny. So those are, those are the ones I came up with. We always like to end with hearing your advice for a young musician who would like to have a career like yours. Well, one piece of advice is that you have to want it so bad, so badly you can't stand it. Um, if you, I tell every student this at their first lesson with me, if you can be happy selling insurance or working in a pharmacy or being a lawyer or being a surgeon or being a business person or a computer person, you should do that and play the oboe on the side because you'll have a much better chance of making a living for yourself. So the only, um, the only possible chance you have is if you want it so badly you can't stand it. And that's not enough, but it's necessary. You have to be willing to work hard. I mean, all of us that, that play instruments successfully have sacrificed things. We've sacrificed social events. We've sacrificed opportunities to go with friends. We have trips or dinners or something. I'm sorry, I got to make reads. No, I still got to practice. I once had a girlfriend that referred to my oboe as her. Oh, <laughs> spending the day with her again. Oh my and, um, God, that's awesome. <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> my wife's not like that, I have to say. Um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, you, you, you have to sacrifice things and you have to have the ability, as I say, to peel yourself up off the rug. Because um, you, you're going to get disappointed. We all do. I don't know any of us that get out of this unscathed and we get disappointed. We get let down. We get our heart broken. We lose things that we want. We're treated unjustly. We feel or things are unfair or somebody you think, oh my gosh, how could that person when they sound horrible? I mean, everybody, everybody goes through the, everybody goes through these things and, and you kind of get devastated from time to time and you have to be able to peel yourself up off the rug and, do it again and attack it again. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you peel yourself up like with a spatula. Just get that, get that elbow up and see if you can then, okay, now work on the knee. And it takes a while to get yourself <laughs> off the rug. But, but the, um, but you have to, you have to believe just because I was unsuccessful, you can keep going. I mean, one of Gladys Elliott's greatest lines to me, was um, don't form an opinion of yourself based on the results of an audition. Ugh. And that's, that's such valuable advice. I mean, you form an opinion of yourself based on very healthy and serious introspection and the counsel of a very, very few people who you know 
care about you and have your best interests at heart. You don't say, oh, I thought I was great, but I lost the audition. I must be bad. That's not true. You cannot assume that because you never know the circumstances. So I think um, you have to want it. You have to um, you have to love it. And practicing has to be a a joy. And one more thing, I'd like to leave. I'd like to leave um, this thought for sure with people. I mean, especially nowadays. You know, we're in a worldwide pandemic, and and everything's up in the air, and no one knows what's going to happen. And but even when we're not, even when things were kind of going normally, people would be completely stressed out and up to their eyes in, in homework and assignments and obligations. And what I always encourage people is see if you can view your oboe practice time rather than another obligation that you have to deal with, but view it as an escape. Okay, I have one hour. I can practice the oboe. I don't have to think about my boyfriend or girlfriend, fight who I just had a big fight with. I don't have to think about my English assignments. I don't have to think about math tests. For the next hour, I'm going to think about only the oboe and creating something beautiful, and I will use that as an escape from the troubles of my life. And if you do that, you look forward to your escape times in practicing. So it doesn't. it's not just one more thing you have to do. Um, it's something you can look forward to that, that brings you peace and brings you joy and successes on a daily basis. Peter, it was such a joy having you on the podcast. I feel so inspired and I'm definitely going to go practice and make some cuckoo breeds. I've just, thank you so much for joining us. This was a joy. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so, I'm so pleased to do it. Thank you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview. It was awesome. And I hope you follow <laughs> us on social media. You'll find lots of awesome stuff. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes and tell us how awesome we are. Who's our next awesome guest? Our next awesome guest is the most awesome bassoon soloist, Rhea Koyama. Awesome! <laughs> Time to end this nerd parade. Go make me! It's a cougar thread. <laughs>